Hello and welcome to uh, an episode of Casting Across the Pond. It's a new podcast. Uh, my name is Derek Rishmaui. Uh I'm one of the participants. I'm a writer, blogger, pastor mostly, uh, and I've got two interlocutors and, and friends here from across the pond, uh, Andrew Wilson. Uh, Hi, yeah, I'm, I'm Andrew, and I'm studying a PhD at a King's College London, and I'm a pastor of a church in Eastbourne, and I write things at thinktheology.co.uk. And Alistair Roberts. I'm a PhD student in Durham in the north of England, and I write at Alistair's Adversaria. Right, and and the idea is we're, we're kind of casting across the pond here. I'm I'm in the U.S., they're in the U.K., and we want to talk about issues of theology, culture, the church, kind of bringing together. Uh, we're both we're all focused on that same gospel and that same uh, confession of Christ, but at the same time, working for that in different contexts and seeing as we as we as we um, talk and discuss and and converse and maybe argue a bit, joke quite a bit. Um, if, if the church isn't blessed in the middle of it all. And on this first episode, we wanted to talk, wanted to, I wanted to raise the issue of uh, a conversation that was sparked recently about the death penalty, actually, in, in kind of the, the, the blogosphere. Um, I believe uh, the, 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 con- the conversation started, I, I, I first came across the discussion with a, by a piece by Brian Zond talking about... Um, sticks and stones and the death penalty and the way we use the Bible in our conversations about biblical ethics. I believe the conversation was originally sparked. Alistair, um, would you mind um, filling me in? I, I think it was, I think it was the remarks of, I think Al, Al Mohler on an yes. issue that grew up. Yes. Alistair, why don't you fill me in on that first half of it? Um, I'm not entirely okay with the news story out of which it arose, but um, there was a particular botched execution from what I gather and now Moller wrote a piece upon it then a number of people responded to it within um, the blogosphere and Rachel Held Evans Zach Hunt and um, Brian Zand and a few others and within that context a number of things were said about the way that we use the Old Testament the way that Jesus related to the Old Testament how we relate red letters to the black letters of our Bibles and this is the sort of issue that we'd like to tackle in this talk today. Yeah, so so the so the so the the post that got me get, got my attention and, and maybe my hackles raised was uh, a piece by Brian Zahn entitled uh, "Jesus Trumps Biblicism: A Tale of Tick, Sticks and Stones," and um, he basically raises the issue of Numbers chapter fe- chapter fifteen. We have the story of God commanding Moses to uh, stone. Uh, have a man stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Now, the original context of the text is is this is just after um, some heavy strictures talking about uh, violations of the, of the commands with a high hand, etc. And we have this uh, kind of boundary test case where the man picks up sticks and is therefore stoned. <laughs> and and Zahn makes the argument that. Um, Zahn makes the argument that, that essentially that doesn't really apply because that that um, that passage doesn't really count. It, it there's a, there's a very important sense in which it's false, and he appeals to Jesus in the New Testament. Um, he says here, here's some of the text. He says, "Look at what we have here in Numbers. A guy gets caught picking up sticks on a Saturday and is stoned to death. The text tells us that Yahweh instructed Moses to do this. This is the Moses who spoke to God face to face." 
And then he comes up with this, this little one. He says, but the prologue of the Gospel of John says the Torah was given by Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God who is near the Father's heart has made him known. And then he goes on to make the point. Um, he, he goes on to set up his contrast between what Moses saw and what we see in Jesus. Uh, and because Jesus is, is the true face of God. You know, it says Moses told, uh, Moses said God told him to kill the Sabbath breaker, but Jesus says that the Father raises the dead and gives them life, and that he only does what he sees the Father doing. So according to Jesus, his Father doesn't kill, his Father gives life. So he sets up this tension, and he says the only problem here happens if you confuse Biblicism with Christianity. Because if, if you have a real grid for this thing, if you, if you look at the Bible through the lens of Jesus' face and what he sees and what he reveals about the Father, well, then we'll kind of know that Moses, you know, hey, inspired as he was for some parts of the Torah, you know, he got that wrong. He just got that wrong, and that shouldn't be a problem for us because we have, you know, Jesus, and he tells us what parts of the Old Testament count, so to speak. And, um, Obviously, I'm, I'm not. I'm not really impressed with that argument. I don't know if we, what you guys wanted to weigh in here, Andrew. You've. you've I think I've, you've I've, What was interesting for me is that, I mean, actually how much of what he said, I thought, interpreted generously, I would ag- agree with. Um, in in I mean, uh, biblicism's a, a just a, a sort of a swear word, really, in certain circles, and it's you know it's yeah. something that some people are saying. Sorry, hang on. I don't know why I'm being wrong. I'm, yeah, that's my phone. I'm sorry. My phone was buzzing. Um, okay. So biblicism is a sort of an offensive word to use, um, uh, and it just gets used as a knockdown word in certain circles, and in others it's something to defend. And I wouldn't agree with that, and, and the way he portrays that, Jesus against the Bible, I disagree with that. But actually, on the, on the general point that what Jesus is doing is radically reworking Sabbath and and actually subverting something that they thought they were entitled to enforce on the Sabbath and saying, no, you can't, and setting Jesus in opposition to the people who were trying to enforce strict Sabbath law. Um, the surprise for me is that, of course, John does say he was breaking the Sabbath, which in, it doesn't come across anything like so clearly in the synoptic accounts of the same kinds of stories. And so I found myself thinking, actually, on a lot of these things, Jesus is doing like what he does in Matthew 19 when he says, this is because of your hardness of heart. And God did say this then, but I'm saying now, I don't want you to do that. There's loads of that in Jesus' ministry. So if Brian was simply saying, here's this story in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, I now don't want you to function that way because I'm here to pronounce something new and better, then I'd agree with it entirely, I think. And I, I personally, I would agree with it on the, not. I don't think it's enough to prove the death, anti-death penalty argument, but I think... I, that would be my, where my sympathies lie, and I can see that argument fitting into that framework. What he then does is almost towards the very last line, then says, oh, it's no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that Jesus uh, imp- adds to and develops and realigns the way that Sabbath is to be used in the Old Testament. I'm actually saying Jesus would say that God never said that at all, which is complete nonsense and completely goes against so many other things Jesus says about not just the Old Testament, but about specific stories in which God strikes people down and uh, turns people into pillars of salt and has fire and sulfur fall out of the sky on people and so many other things, which is just so strange to read Jesus as if he's saying, my father would never do that because of other things Jesus says. But on the particular example that he gives in John 5, I think he is pushing against um, the kill on the Sabbath thing. And I'd find that there could, he could have made a good case for that in an anti-death penalty way without getting himself into the hermeneutical hot water he did. 
Yeah, so there's there's two lines here that we can pit against each other. So he's got this one. He says, so if we're going to talk about what stance Christians should take on the death penalty, we can't just cite Torah. The Torah endorses stoning Sabbath breakers. Jesus is not. And there's this element where you would say, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I, that paragraph I think is superb. I mean, I, yeah. I and then right? I think it's really true. I could have written that myself, and yeah. I would really agree with it. So that was what was strange is that he, he didn't need to say. And God never said that or never did that in the Steve Chalk, Jesus T-strainer way, um, because that he, he doesn't need to make that case in order to make the argument he's making in response to whoever it was, Al Mola or whoever. One. You said you said Steve Chalk, Jesus T-strainer. Would you you know explain that? Yeah, I've read sorry, it, that, but, um, you know break down what you mean by that because that's that's, uh, I, that's I'm obscure. As in using something I said as, as jargon is really the worst form of self-aggrandizing. <laughs> um, I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, I, so I've used the, the analogy I've used is that quite often when people talk about the Jesus lens, by which they say we're reading the Bible through the Jesus lens, as in coloring what we're doing, I, I say I don't think it's so much a lens in some cases, it's more of a tea strainer where you, instead of looking at, at things from a particular angle and it coloring your view through Jesus, instead you use a particular version of Jesus you've cobbled together from some bits of the Gospels, and then you turn that into a fine mesh tea strainer, which you then try and push the Old Testament through, and only a few bits make it through, and the rest of it gets stuck and left on the saucer. And that actually even the Jesus in the synoptics doesn't fit through the tea strainer you formed because he doesn't, he says, as I've already said, you know, you read Luke 17 or something, you think that is very, very hard to cohere with a red-letter progressive E Jesus. Um, and, yeah. and, uh, so that, that's what I mean by that. But I'm saying Brian's aunt didn't need to do that in order to make the anti-death penalty case um, from that particular story. I think you, you could just say, it's, it, I think you could very legitimately do exactly what Jesus clearly does with divorce and hardness of heart in Matthew 19 and say, I think he's doing the same thing here um, with the issue of the, the death penalty stoning people on the Sabbath. And I don't think that would have been particularly controversial to certainly anybody like me. Um, and whether even death penalty advocates might well have said, well, fair enough, he's not endorsing it in that way and we don't turn to Torah for those sorts of ethics. So I think it was a bit strange. He, he sort of said what he needed to say, but then went well beyond it into a sort of Jesus didn't really think God ever did that sort of stuff, despite countless references to Jesus saying God did things very like that, and, and I think that was what was weird. How about you, Alistair? I think the problem comes when he makes the very helpful statement, I think, do you feel the tension? We should feel the tension, and the question then is, what do we do with the tension? And I think he's too quick to collapse that tension by removing one of the poles, as it were, by disqualifying <laughs> the Old Testament word, rather than thinking, how do we explore this? How can it teach us as we um, get into depth and understand why there is a tension between these two things. And I think it's that particular question that is often neglected. And the red letters are chosen above the black letters. The Old Testament word is put to one side for the sake of what Christ said or something along those lines. And if we actually approach the tension as something that God has put there to teach us, I think we could benefit greatly. And in that respect, I think that people like Brian are missing out on what could be a very illuminating study. Yeah, I mean, that that exactly. I, I look at this and I think up until then, you know, you're making some really great points. And then you get to uh, you get to this sense. He says, but I follow Jesus. I don't have to pretend that Jesus endorsed every depiction of God found in the Old Testament because Jesus did not. And there is this, and then he goes on to quote um, some of the antithesis in Matthew, 
five, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And the thing that drives me crazy is that he has to skip right over, you know, Matthew 5, like 17 to 20, where he says, not a jot or a tittle. I haven't come to overturn the prophets. Uh, you know, the, Jesus in John, who he's very fond of quoting, you know, says so, so scripture, scripture cannot be destroyed. There isn't a single inch of it that can be um, bound or, or unloosed or, or, or cast to the side. And he talks about Jesus not endorsing all the depictions of God in the Old Testament. It, it just flies in the face of what I see Jesus actually saying there. And so there's this, it, it saddens me. And what's disturbing to me is, is how increasingly popular this argument is. I mean, you saw it with uh, Steve Chalk in your debates there. Uh, I've seen it in a number of just threads of it in a number of, of, of blogs that are, that are gaining a lot of traction. And the question then becomes, you know, you raise the Jesus T-strainer and the G versus the Jesus lens. The question that get off, often gets raised is, okay, well, we're supposed to read, are we supposed to read the Old Testament light of Jesus or Jesus in light of the Old Testament? And, and what I'd be curious to hear from, um, you know, both Alistair and Andrew, like, I think we, we don't want to necessarily say, oh, well, just, completely read everything to, to, to reverse. I think, I think Christian tradition is oftentimes said, no, no, we read, read the Old Testament in light of the New, but that's, that's kind of a goofy way of doing it, the way you're doing it. Again, the, the T-strainer method. So, so, I mean, how would you... It's just a, it's just so we just don't really use the word goofy very often, so I like really? that. That's, oh, sorry. that's kind no, of a goofy way of doing it. And it is, and I think that's what's strange about, the, about that, that method, because I think there is... I think if, if it depends what you're trying to achieve. You see, if you're trying to say, I am trying to show that Jesus didn't support the death penalty, I think there's plenty of material you could turn to there, and I'm sure we might disagree amongst the three of us about whether that whether it is or not, but you, you, you've certainly got material to go on. If, on the other hand, you're trying to say, Jesus, if you had stopped him in the street and interviewed him, which is what Zond effectively does, saying, I think if you'd asked Jesus, what about this? If the question, instead of being, should we now execute somebody for breaking the Sabbath, I think Jesus would say no. But if the question was, do you think that in the Bible God ever either struck people down or commanded anybody to kill anybody else, he'd say, he, not just he would say, but he did say in multiple places that that is what happened. And, um, and again, I mean, I, I mentioned, you know, Luke 17, Luke 18, so some of these, the, the text particularly where it just saying, guys, I'm warning you about the age, the, the thing that's going to come, the judgment that's happening when fire and sulfur fell from the sky and destroyed Sodom and I want you to remember Lot's wife, who was turned into a pillar of salt, and make sure that you don't copy her example. You think he is in no way acting as if those things were not acts of divine judgment or as if they were random coincidences or anything remotely like that. He's saying, of course those things happened, and of course that was God's word then, and as you say, the scriptures cannot be broken, and I've come to fulfill the law, and none of a, not a jot or tittle of it will disappear. He, he's saying all of those things at the same time as saying, and yet I, I'm not telling you to live like that now. Um, and I think that's the... That's what well, I suppose when Alistair talks about the tension to be explored, that's where I totally agree. And I feel like sometimes, I, might, I don't know, I'm sure there are some conservative bogeymen who flatten that tension on the side of, yes, we should continue to, in, to use Levitical law as a guide for public morality and ethics, um, which I would have personally some, quite a lot of questions about. But on the progressive side, you get exactly the same flattening happening on the other side, saying, yes, we should affirm that Jesus is saying this now, and therefore God never said it. Whereas I think the biblical picture is, no, God did say it then because of, as I say, hardness of heart and other things. 
And that is not how we're to live now. And, of course, that's what you do with all manner of things in the Torah, including, you know, from circumcision onwards. And you look at Acts 15 and the way the early church hammered out issues like that, and you think they were very clear on that. That was for then, and it may be for some of us now, and it isn't for everybody now, and we need to think through how we live in this new covenant age without disregarding everything that God's done before as if that wasn't from him. I just to me, that's so obvious that I didn't really think it needed defending, and then people still see, keep saying stuff like this. So, yeah. Alistair? For me, I think there's a difference between the sort of trajectory ethics that you get in these sorts of accounts and also the sharp distinctions that they'll draw between God as he is revealed in Christ and this false depiction of um, apparently false depiction of God within the Old Testament. That sort of trajectory ethics and the idea of progressive um, redemptive history. And that's one of the things I think is very much at issue in John 5, because it's drawing upon those themes. You have a man who's who's been um, infirm for 38 years. Now, 38 years is not an accidental number thrown in there. Um, In Deuteronomy, it says that's the period of time that they wandered after their rebellion and not going into the land as they should have done. So they wandered for 38 years before they could get into the land of rest. And then you have this waiting for the waters to um, to be moved, which would relate to um, the Jordan crossing the Jordan. Jesus leads the man across and brings him into rest. He takes up his bed, the, an instrument that were of rest, and enters in. And it's very much the Sabbath day is part of the point that Jesus heals there. It's not just a a breaking of an odd commandment. It's showing the progression in God's work over history that the Sabbath day was pointing towards this greater period of rest and Christ brings that rest. He brings it for this man and he will bring it for us as well. And when you draw this flat tension between these Old Testament and New Testament texts as if they exist on the same plane and some should be discounted, some should be held in hand, you lose sight of this progression, which I think is very much the point of many New Testament texts. See, and that that is a that is a fabulous that is a fabulous little little uh, example of of that progression forward, and, and you even see that this isn't even a straight um, stopping them from violating the Sabbath command. The issue is you now this is the true fulfillment. We this this whole thing was aiming at that. You're missing you're missing the point, fellas. It's not that Jesus is like, well, you know, we're not going to really be too harsh about that now. It's like, no, you, you're missing the point. This is what we were always about. So why would you go ahead and stone the guy for doing for, for for reaching the fulfillment of what this law was always pointing to? Um, the thing I think one thing that you pointed out there, um, and it just raised the issue, uh, is is the way you know the, the picking and choosing and, and, and between between the bits and and the, and the use the, the word uh, new Marcionism. So uh, harkening back to the old the old heresy. Uh, the Marcionite heresy where, you know, you had Marcions saying, well, you know, the Old Testament God, angry, vengeful, mean, vindictive, etc. And in fact, uh, quite a bit of the New Testament, we're only going to take some of Paul's letters and um, and like some of Luke. And, and, and that'll be our Bible uh, because that shows us the good and gracious God that Jesus showed us and not the mean, nasty, vindictive one. And there's this element where, um, you know, the, the church condemned that, right? You know, there's a unity between the covenants, etc., and, and, and some of these advocates of this kind of Jesus uh, hermeneutic, the, 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 the goofy one, the T-strainer one, um, they would repudiate the charge of Marcionism. And in a sense, it's not. 
It's not hard Martianism. It's not a, it's not a rejection of the two covenants. And at the same time, there's it's it's an odd kind of epistemological Marcionism. There is an odd trajectory one where where you've it's almost like you've got two parallel gods being revealed across the covenants because you have God striking people down in the New Testament and, and they and, and that tea strainer hermeneutic has to has to cut those out. You've got um, Acts Acts five and Ananias and Sapphira. You've got Acts twelve Herod. You've got stuff in the Revelation twelve. So there's an odd like I want to say parallel. Parallel Martianism, a, a, a long-range trajectory Martianism, I, I, that, that is that is disturbing in some of its conclusions in terms of revelation. Like if you got Moses, Moses doesn't know what God's committing in in, in uh, Numbers fifteen. How do you know? How do you know he, he, he was right in Exodus twenty? Right. I mean, this is the same. Yeah. These are the same sources. You're, you're 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 introducing a split in revelation that is, you know, you've got you've divided the face of God. In the Bible, and it's and it's the, the implications are, are huge. And so I don't know if you guys had a comment on that. I mean, that's that's I think the thing that most most um, alarms me. Not the death penalty argument uh, at all, really. That can go either way. But but what it does to our doctrine of revelation of God is what um, disturbs me. Following on from your point, one of the things I noticed about the post was that the meaning of the text in question was taken as immediately obvious. There was no interrogation, close interrogation of the text themselves. The text themselves were seen to be, on the surface of them, their meaning could not be disputed. And so there was no question of what do these mean in the context? Could we reconcile them in some way by understanding how they appear within the broader framework of biblical revelation, within redemptive history, etc.? Um, and what often... What I think this reveals is how soon we're, we can dissolve the tensions that would otherwise inform us. We are quicker to blame the clarity of God's voice or the reliability of his revelation than we are to um, question the clarity of our hearing or huh. the clarity of our understanding. And so when we have so much faith in ourselves as, our, as interpreters of scripture that we don't even dig deeper into these texts, but lose this faith in the perspicuity and the reliability and consistency of God's word, what we end up with is a laxness and a general laziness when we come to scripture. We don't explore these questions. We presume that any tension must be a contradiction. I think think that's a very, very helpful point, particularly when it comes to some of the the background of the John 5 story, which you were just talking about, Alistair, and of course I'm sure there's other stuff that could be said there as well. That, that that desire to yes to interrogate and ask questions and say how how did how did John understand this how did the author of the Pentateuch understand it how did what we know of the historical Jesus understand it what was Jesus's attitude to the law does this if I was to say that would that have any domino effect on what I thought about the historical Jesus as, and his attitude to law everywhere else have I engaged with scholarship whether evangelical critical both on that text and how other people in history have wrestled with that since almost none of them said Jesus just basically said that the Old Testament picture of God was wrong. Is there any historical theology informing this? Is there any, you know, and, and so many things like that, which then just are, you just, if I just push that, 
it has all sorts of knock-on implications. The dominoes go down everywhere else about other things, and not just in a slippery slope, biblical inerrancy, infallibility way, but actually just in a historical theology and a view of who Jesus historically actually was and what sort of attitude he took. Is Am I then creating an irreconcilable tension with the portrait of Jesus presented in Matthew or in Luke if I decide to take that view of that story in John? And Now, I'm not saying you can cover all of that stuff in a blog post, but it didn't look to me as if Brian or many of the other people who said things like that are concerned or perhaps even aware that that's one of the things that inevitably follows when you do that sort of thing, particularly when you do it in the face of a very long period of consensus about how to handle stuff like that. Yeah, that that whole um, collapsing of attention and waiting, that assumption of innocence when it comes to Scripture, the assumption of, and the assumption of folly on my own part, the assumption of finiteness, I was having a conversation with somebody about this just the other day. My assumption when it comes to the text, I've been, I've been, I've been assured enough that when I get to a text and it sounds weird to me or, or, or troubling to me or, uh, man, I really don't know how that is just or I really don't know how that is um, consistent with Jesus, there's this assumption that, okay, but I'm small and I'm finite and I'm still, I mean, I'm still only in my 20s. And even if you're still only in your 50s or your 70s or whatever age, you're still coming to the, the holy text that, that, that the church has has recognized as God's word for thousands of years, there might be something you're not seeing here. In which case, some, yeah. some, some extra study, some extra um, diligence, and then, and then also just understanding like some extra repentance on your part sometimes is what is involved in and understanding that the cultural presuppositions you're bringing to the text and your own, the, the fact that sometimes we don't like texts because they, they, they accuse us. And so we don't want them to say, or if they do say that, well, and, no, this is this is part of Moses getting it wrong. But in, in, in any case, following up with the historical stuff, I think that even with that uh, that Sabbath stick story in Numbers 15, I remember doing some digging. I had to go do some digging. What's the context on this? Oh, this follows right after the um, the section in the law talking about uh, sinning with a high hand. In, in, and the importance of that in, in the maintenance of, of the order of the community. And so this, this grown adult man picking up sticks isn't just this guy, oh, dope dee dope do going to get some sticks. This is yeah, a, exactly. Yeah. This is an example of a flagrant, possibly community-devastating act of treason against the, against the covenant lord. It's the, that's the context of this. This isn't just some, well, you know, it was a stick, you know, and maybe it was just... <laughs> Well, we we look at it like, yeah. well, obviously that's the plain reading of the text that I have as a as an eighteen year old in an apologetics blog, or or as a as a even a thirty year old as in the pastorate, a forty year old in the pastorate, um, wrestling with these things. I don't know what saying Zon has can't can't use a commentary. He probably has a greater library than I do. But what I'm saying is going in and assuming no, I I I am not Moses. I am not. The writers, uh, I'm not Luke. I, I haven't seen God face to face. I have the Holy Spirit, uh, union with Christ, all these things. And at the same time, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna err on the side of, if somebody's wrong, it's probably me. Uh, yeah. When it comes to the text, uh, and I find I that's a healthy assumption to make in my case. Yeah, and I, and I think actually, like, it, that's not just a question of. I, I, that is a huge question of personal humility and attitude from which position from which to judge God. But I also think you're, that yeah, the, the wider point you make about um, it's not just a stick. I just think that's a really, you know, in in context, it, it's it's not just a, a curtain 
that a man walks through. It's a curtain a man walks through from right into the very presence of God. And it's not just a pole that as it touches. It's the pole that holds the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of God is. And it's not just... It's like saying, you know, it's even, you know, it's just sex or it's just a bit of bacon or pig or whatever. At any point in history, it's just a foreskin. You could say that about anything. You think, no, it isn't, because it doesn't simply represent the physical entity as if you or I had happened to pick up a bacon sandwich in in judah at that time that's not just a bacon sandwich that is an, a defiance of an entire way of living and um the, you read the stories of the maccabees and see how hard people fought to defend against people trying to get them to do things which you and i might think well that's just making a fuss about nothing it's just a stick it's just a you know bacon sani but it's a completely different thing in this symbolic universe of the text and i think that matters enormously when it comes to flattening out the tension in in the terms Alistair's used, I think, Uh, and just seeing not just from the New Testament side what on earth is going on here, but as you rightly say, in the Old Testament. And then to stand there and say, without having done that work, I'm going to say, there's obviously a big problem here, and I'm going to side with this one because it obviously is a little bit more lefty than the other one. I'm not saying that's all Brian has done. I don't know. I mean, he actually seems like a very, you know, seems like an honest and very guy with a lot of integrity who reads Scripture carefully, but I just, in that piece, I found myself thinking, I don't think you've followed this through to all the places it would go. I don't think you've done the work necessary before making a pronouncement like that, which is so historically unorthodox and, and evangelically dangerous. I think the key word that Andrew mentioned earlier is the word wrestle. Um, in scripture, I think we see voices that wrestle with each other, but they're not against each other. And it's exploring that wrestling, throwing ourselves into that and allowing the text to wrestle with us too. We don't understand where the text is taking us. And I've often understood my experience of reading the text as similar to Jacob's experience of wrestling in the darkness, not being willing to let this person go until he's blessed. And he doesn't know who this person is. But yet, as he goes through that wrestling experience, it is revealed to him who he is actually wrestling with. And in our wrestling with scripture and in the wrestling within scripture, as we expose ourselves to that, we are changed by it. And yet, if we collapse that tension, we lose out on the blessing. We extract ourselves from the wrestling and we don't receive the revelation that comes at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that, again, that the richer, uh, one of the things I love, I'm going to mention him, he's probably going to come up if we keep doing this, Kevin Van Hooser, um, in his theology of scripture and doctrine, the drama of doctrine, he's the one that first clued me in on the idea of as- aspects aspectival realism that you know looking at the work of christ on the cross you know it's not christus victor or penal substitution or moral influence all all three are going on there quite comfortably you know jesus gets a lot of work done we should give him credit for all of it um in the same way when it comes to scripture when you when you see these tension the wrestling you know life is complicated and so you need proverbs and you need job and you need ecclesiastes it's not just that well you know Job overturns Proverbs, easy, easy theology of work hard and, 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 and it'll work for you. It's like, no, Job, Job adds another voice. The, the wisdom in Proverbs, hey, it's wisdom. You got to know it's wisdom literature. But Job is adding another voice saying, yes, but there's also this aspect of life. And I don't think that, I don't think the, you know, the various authors or whatever of Proverbs would be like, oh yeah, you know, you're right. I was totally wrong. It's like, yeah, I mean, Absolutely, that's there. It actually kind of reminds me, well, I won't go with that analogy, but um, 
We need all of those different voices speaking to the complex reality of life. And the fact that people want to flatten God, think about God. God is simple in essence. He's, he's, he's one. He's holding all these kinds of things. But an infinite God is going to be rendered in history in an, in, in an infinitely complex picture. You can't get all of God by just, well, here's this flat picture. He's simple. So that means he should be simple to understand to me. It's like, no, he's simple and infinite, which means if you're going to try and paint anything close to an accurate picture of him, uh, or at least a, a, a balanced or whatever picture of him, there's going to be, uh, from our small, finite, and, and again, sinful vantage point, there's going to be some complexity in that narrative rendering of who God is. And this is, this is exit where, where the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, you know, he's, 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 uh, gracious and faithful to the thousand, thousands generation. And, and at the same time, you know, judgment to the third and the fourth, he's slow to anger, but at the same time, he will not acquit the guilty. That's, that's God giving you his calling card. He's like, this is my name. The long description of, 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 of a God that you, He's all those things at once. And so when you just try and flatten them out into, yeah, but this story emphasizes this part. And uh, and that's what we're going to go with. Oh, you miss God. And that's the, that, I think, is the scariest thing to me in the whole business is is, yeah. is, is missing part of God's beauty, which is funny. Uh, Zahn, Zahn wrote Zahn's book, um, the, the Beauty Will Save the World, I loved it. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a Zahn hater. Um, but there's an element of man, but you're missing some of the beauty of a just, a beautifully just and a wildly just God, uh, who, who, who enforces justice for the sake of, of covenant salvation and wholeness. The end goal is covenant salvation and wholeness. Uh, and so God enters history and does some, some historical things, um, that, that might be uncomfortable, but they're fundamentally, um, they fundamentally point us to, to a God who's beautiful. And so that's, I think, my heart on this one. And so um, that, that's, that's, that's my little two cents there. More like 24 yeah, That's well put. A couple bucks. Um, I think we might be coming to the end of our time here on this first episode. Um, so on this episode of, uh, of Casting Across the Pond, but it, were there any, uh, any closing comments you, you, you fellas wanted to make? No, I think you summarized that really well. And I did. One of the exciting things, I think, about the tensions of Scripture is it's the tensions that forge us as the people of God. It's as we allow ourselves to be shaped by these things, to be pulled in various directions and to be reshaped by God's word that we are changed and we become more like God. And I think it's the loss of those, uh, the collapsing of those, it's a loss to all of us. And it would be great to spend more time with those tensions and to expose ourselves to them and have the text wrestle with us. Well, and, yeah. and that, that, that issue of wrestling and tension, I, mean, I love that we're beginning the conversation this way because that's part of our hope here with this, this podcast, Casting Across the Pond. We're all pretty much in agreement on this first one, but I, I anticipate in, in the future we will we'll want to be wrestling over issues and, and submitted to God's word, but wrestling together uh, from our different contexts with our fundamental trust in Scripture, fundamental trust in the God of Scripture, and yet at the same time coming from our different vantage points, trying to sharpen and, and help each other in the wrestling in order to gain a blessing for ourselves and, and hopefully for 
the wider church and, and, and you if you're, if you're listening in with us. So with that, uh, we, we say uh, God bless you and good day and thank you for joining us.